Okay, so tonight's program was a suggestion of Lorinda Sorensen um, a few months ago. And then when I started asking around, suddenly I learned a lot of people knew about our speaker today, Mr. Uh, William Padilla Brown. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's the founder of Microsymbiotics. Uh, William Padilla Brown is a social entrepreneur, citizen scientist, like most of us here, mycologist, amateur psychologist, urban shaman, writer, YouTube vlogger, contributing editor for Fungi Magazine, which Brett Bunyard knew him, researcher, poet, and father. And I have to say, he has a six-year-old son, and I've seen pictures of him with his son. But uh, William holds a permaculture design certificate acquired through Susquehanna Permaculture and NGOZL, whatever. William is leading in the country in the field of cordyceps cultivation, and he regularly teaches at mushroom clubs around the country, festivals, agricultural conferences, and much, much more. I'm going to turn this over to William. We're going to... Um, All right. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to hearing from you. How's it going, everybody? It's um, it's good to be here, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you guys about cordyceps mushrooms. I just had to mention um, that I'm not an amateur psychologist, but I am an amateur phycologist. I do work with algae. I don't work with mine. It's all good. All right. So for those of you that don't know, I've been working with cordyceps for the past uh, five years. And you guys can take this next uh, hour or so to join in on the CordyQuest. Um, so the CordyQuest started five years ago. Um, I started a mushroom festival called Mycosymbiotics Mushroom and Arts Festival in central Pennsylvania. Um, at my first festival, a friend of mine found a cordyceps militaris mushroom growing in the wild on the last day of the three-day festival. And um, he let me take it back to my lab so that I could clone it. Um, at this point in time, back in 2015, my business was focused a lot on isolating native strains of various mushrooms. So cloning native strains of, of medicinal and gourmet mushrooms. That was the name of the game for me. Yeah. So whenever we found the cordyceps mushrooms, I was uh, super excited to add this into my strain collection because I knew that, that the cordyceps mushroom hosted uh, medicinal and nutritional benefits. Um, and I didn't have it. And the only, the only place that I knew where to get it from back then would have been from Aloha Medicinals, which I think it was like $200 or something to get that culture back then. And um, yeah, so whenever I got it, I took it back home and I looked online and I looked on all of the blog websites and the mushroom growing group on Facebook to see if I could uh, see if anybody knew how to, to grow it. Um, and there wasn't really any information on how to grow it. So what I did um, is I looked on Google Scholar. That's where I go and I can't find information on regular websites. There's very minimal information on the cultivation, but the things that I did find on Google Scholar mentioned about cultivation in various Asian countries. Um, so then I translated um, Cordyceps Militaris mushroom into um different Asian languages and then on Google translate and then copied and pasted and put on YouTube um, and found a bunch of videos of different people in different Asian countries working with cordyceps mushrooms. Um, I, I also, once I got that culture cloned from the, from the festival, I sent it out to as many people as uh, were that were interested in it, which then was probably like 10 people. Um, which is interesting because now I can sell probably a hundred of these cultures a month um, because so much more people are interested in cultivate, or cultivating it now. Um, so out of all the people that I did send it to back then, my friend Ryan Gates from Terrestrial Fungi in, in uh, Michigan, he got back to me and uh, we started bouncing ideas back and forth and he had a translated recipe from um, Dr. Anon in Thailand and we used that and began cultivating cordyceps mushrooms. So um, it's been a crazy journey ever since. Um, a lot more people cultivating cordyceps mushrooms um, as we release more information. And uh, it's been pretty uh, fun to see that culture evolve. 
So yeah, when we're talking cordyceps, we're talking fungi, as we all know, um, especially being part of the mushroom club. Um, it is an ascomycete and the phylum ascomycota. Um, in the class Sordariomycetes, um, in the order Hypocreals, and in that order, um, there are a lot of other cordyceps type mushrooms um, that that I've seen and worked with. Um, and then family Cordycepitaceae and genus Cordyceps. So uh, Cordyceps militaris is actually true Cordyceps, um, which is interesting because the uh, Tibetan Cordyceps is uh, Ophiocordyceps sinensis, um, and there aren't many other Cordyceps species in the genus Cordyceps that we actually work with, but um, we just have taken to calling most Cordyceps-looking mushrooms a Cordyceps, um, which I think is just a little interesting fact. Um, cordyceps militaris complex. Um, so although what we're going to be talking about today is cordyceps militaris, there are three other species that are macroscopically identical, um, um, to cordyceps militaris that most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, so we have cordyceps pseudomilitaris, cordyceps roseostromata, and cordyceps cardinalis. Um, I think it'll be really interesting as time goes by um, and we do the DNA work to make sure what species we're working with is actually what we think it is um, to be able to cultivate these different mushrooms and then maybe work with analytical um, uh, uh, equipment or uh, laboratories that are equipped with analytical equipment um, to see if there are any variations in the compounds that these mushrooms are producing um, to see if we could utilize them in conjunction with each other or utilize one over another one for a specific effect that we're looking for. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to play with that moving forward. Um, so we're gonna get into breeding. That's what the name of the game is tonight, uh, breeding cordyceps, uh, which is pretty fun. Um, and as far as I know, I'm one of three people that are actually doing this um, in North America. I think there might be a couple other people that are starting to get into it. Um, but there's three of us that are actually breeding out commercial strains and offering them um, to the public. Um, so first things first is you're going to need to find a parent strain. Um, so we're going to be talking about wild parent strains first. Um, I find my wild strains in the summertime, um, usually May until um, August. Um, and I find them in oak, hemlock, mixed forest, where there is a lot of moss on the ground and um, preferably running water. So a creek or a spring or something of that nature. Um, I'm we're typically finding them on the Pityopterian uh, uh, pupa host, um, will mostly be moths. Um, so Lepidioptera covers beetles, or not beetles, um, moths and butterflies, and uh, Cordyceps militaris will also grow on Coleoptera, which covers beetles. Um, and Cordyceps militaris is one of the most successful Cordyceps mushrooms because of this. Um, it, it's been seen on over 52 different species of insects, I believe, at this point. Um, there's a lot more that we're finding in the U.S. that weren't um, documented. So we'll see this little, uh, this is what the kind of ecotype looks like. And we'll see this little orange, smaller than a, a child's pinky finger sometimes, um, little orange stroma or fruiting body sticking up out of the ground. Um, more often than not, it's going to be in moss, um, but we've seen it in um, leaf litter coming right out of soil or even coming out of uh, rotting wood. Um, so sometimes the cordyceps will be in the wood, the host of the, the insect will actually be in the wood. Um, so what we do when we find these growing is we dig them up, um, we'll pull the moss back, try not to break the host, um, and then we'll brush it off. You know, I keep a soft bristled toothbrush handy um, to keep the dirt off of it because um, once we harvest it, we usually section it off in one of these bead boxes or you can get a tackle box or something um, to isolate your specimen. Uh, you're gonna wanna brush off all of the dirt 
um, so that you don't get dirt all over the parathesium. Um, because once you get dirt on the top, that can affect um, whenever you're trying to get spores out of it, because the spores comes out of the top, come out of the top, out of the parathesium, um, which are the bumpy parts on the top of the stroma or the fruiting body. Um, when we pull the host species, the host specimen up at the ground, um, we want to make sure that it's not broken. Um, if the host shell is broken, there's potential that there are mites inside of it. Um, if there are mites inside of it and you bring it in to clone it or get spores um, from the fruiting body, there is a potential that you might get the mites um, in your laboratory. And the last thing that you want is mites in your laboratory. You do not want to be dealing with mites in your laboratory. Um, they'll actually eat the mycelium and they can move in and out of Petri dishes. Even with the parafilm wax film on the outside of the Petri dish, they can move in and out of it. Um, so they'll eat up your mycelium and walk around moving around contamination. Um, so your other option would be to buy parent strains. So um, you can buy parent strains from um, myself. I sell various cultures that I breed here in my lab um, at mycoshop.net through Mycosymbiotics. Um, I would also recommend Appalachian Gold. Um, they operate an Etsy uh, store. Um, they're based out of Pittsburgh area here in Pennsylvania. Um, and they're a friend of mine um, that produces lots of uh, beautiful commercial cordyceps specimens that they breed. Um, and then we have uh, terrestrial fungi um, out in Michigan, Ryan Gates, and he's been breeding cordyceps, um, really interesting cordyceps strains. He's also been doing a lot of breeding projects that are featuring um, specimens found in Europe and Asia. Um, so he's doing a little bit of international um, cordyceps military breeding, which I think is fascinating, super fascinating. Um, so the next thing that you would need to do once you have a parent um, is to isolate spores from the parent. Um, so if you buy a parent strain from myself or one of my friends, um, you're going to probably want to actually grow that mushroom out first. Um, if you want to breed it, you need to grow that mushroom out first. Um, if you find a specimen in the wild, um, you're going to bring it back to the lab and um, you're going to cut the uh, stroma off from the host and um, utilize a little bit of Vaseline or Waxeline um, to secure your specimen to the top of a Petri dish. Um, typically, I'll be utilizing water agar for this step. The water agar, um, because it's lacking nutrients, will the um, spores that drop onto it will propagate way slower um, than if you had it on nutritive agar. So I'll typically use water agar. I'll allow the specimen to drop its spores onto the water agar. Um, and the spores will generally drop, um, depending on the, how vigorous the specimen is, is, sometimes I can get a really nice spore print in like four hours. Um, if the specimen is slow, it could take up to two days. Um, but once I get a nice spore print where it's visible to the naked eye, I can actually see white um, spores on the, the Petri dish. I'll remove the specimen from the Petri dish um, and I'll give it about a day to allow some of the spores to germinate just a little bit. Um, once the spores germinate a little bit, it allows me to see it with my naked eye a little bit better. Um, but I do need to utilize my microscope to make sure that when I go to isolate these spores that they aren't connected already because that will waste a lot of my time. Um, so I look at under the microscope, I find the spores that are isolated. Um, both of these pictures here on the right show isolated spores. Um, you can see the mycelium started to come out of, out of them. Um, Cordyceps spores are more, look more like straight lines than typical basidiomycetes spores that look like seeds. Um, so yeah, once uh, once the spores germinate a little bit and you see them on the, I see them on that petri dish. I'll ice, I'll look at them under the microscope, make sure they're single, um, and then I'll go in there with like a dental pick or a scalpel, um, and I'll pull out a spore and I'll put it onto a, its own dish. Um, 
So I'll put a, I'll put, I'll let the dish sit out and be exposed to light. When it's exposed to light, the um, mycelium will start to pigment yellow. Um, when the mycelium pigments yellow, that's just a good sign for me um, that it's going to be able to produce good fruiting. Um, if it does actually start producing mushrooms um, when you expose it to light, that means that you didn't get an isolate and um, before you put it onto that dish, it had already connected with another spore. Um, so that's not what you want for breeding purposes. You want them to still be single. Um, so once you know that they're single um, and they're getting a, a decent pigment to them, um, what I'll do next um, is run a DNA extraction and amplification um, and I'll be amplifying their mating type genes. So basically what this does is it lets me know if it's a male or female um, because I can't put two males together and make an offspring. Um, so I need to be able to uh, combine the appropriate opposing mating types. Um, so for Cordyceps militaris, there are two mating type locusts and three mating types. So I test for the mating type locusts um, because on the first mating type locust, we call that MAT1. There's only one mating type, and we just call that one MAT1. On the second mating type locust, we call that MAT2, and there's two mating types. Uh, there's MAT121 and 122. Um, they can't mate with each other, um, but both of the mating types that are on the mating type 2 locust can mate with the mating type 1. So I need to figure out which ones are mating type 1 and which ones are mating type 2. Um, so I do that by testing the DNA in my lab. Um, ex, ex, amplifying that the mating type genes um, and seeing for each sample whether it's expressing the mating type one or the mating type two gene um, in the gel electrophoresis, which is in the picture on the left. Um, if it's showing both mating type genes, then again that one is already um, has already combined with another spore. Um, if it's showing one, that's great. Then that proves that it's a single and you can mate it with one that is proven to be the opposing mating type. Um, this is whenever the, everything starts to get really cool. Um, because at this point, once I have confirmed the mating types, I can breed them. Um, there is so, a question for you. Yep. Um, it was nice use of chromatography. Electrophoresis, what voltage? What voltage for the electrophoresis? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. I'm using the blue gel electrophoresis from mini PCR. Um, let's see. Blue gel electrophoresis voltage. Um, it's 48 volts. Uh, so 48 volts with the electrophoresis. Um, but yeah, that's super simple. Just um, two different primers for each sample to test for the mating type. Um, so once I'm ready to breed them, I'll take a little piece of mycelial tissue from each, from one from the mating type one and one from the mating type two, put them together on a petri dish. And once the mycelium starts to grow out, they'll combine with each other and exchange the genetic information. Um, at that point, once they're grown out enough, I'll put a little bit of it on a liquid culture. Um, I'll then take that liquid culture and I'll put it to the substrate recipe, um, one of my commercial culture substrate recipes. Um, for a commercial culture um, on mycelium, um, putting the putting the culture mycelium culture onto the um, substrate from liquid culture onto the solid state substrate, um, it should take about three to seven days for any commercial type culture to go, grow through a jar. Um, when you are growing in a more commercial style, um, like growing them in a tote bin or in bigger containers, um, it'll colonize in about three days, but jars go a little bit slower, but jars, I like to use jars as a standard um, for testing my strains. Um, all jars for any commercial genetic should produce between three and five dry grams of cordyceps mushrooms. If you get more than five dry grams, you have a really amazing uh, culture on your hands. 
Um, it's, if it's above three, then that's enough for it to be considered a commercial strain in my book, in my eyes. Um, so I see how long it takes for the mycelium to grow through the substrate. Um, once the, myce I, the mycelium grows in, in darkness, once the mycelium is grown through the substrate, I expose it to light. The light causes the uh, pigments to express. So then the mycelium starts turning orange. After the mycelium turns orange, usually about three or four days, you'll start to see the pins of the mushrooms. Um, and then it takes about 30 days or so um, for the mushrooms to produce large enough from that point um, for harvest. So once the mushrooms are ready and grown, I start to note the traits of the offspring. Um, this one is really nice. It has a nice long stroma um, and it filled out the substrate very evenly. Um, this is really good traits to have for a commercial strain um, when it's going to fill out your substrate very nice. Um, nice, long, aesthetically pleasing stroma, um, especially when you're going to be selling this mushroom dry. Um, you don't want it to be too short because then it makes the pieces just look all really small. Um, so having long pieces um, looks really nice when you're selling it. So I really like this, the um, results of these, of this breeding pair. This one had really nice long stroma. Um, I like that the parathecium are located more towards the top, um, but this one didn't fill out the, the substrate very well. This one has a lot of open space on the substrate yet. Um, and so I would look for which one of these parents was exp expressing the trait with a long stroma. Um, and then probably stay away from the parent that's not filling out the substrate very well. Hopefully, there, there the is a question for you. Yep. Um, don't you need an insect host to cultivate these? No, um, I cultivate these mushrooms on a rice based substrate. Um, if we have enough time here, which it looks like we do, um, I could talk a little bit about my substrate recipe. Okay, because uh, they said. Uh, Okay, so your supplement, okay, because somebody wondered the same thing and said, do you supplement the media to mimic the insect host? I think everybody's thinking insect, but I think it's not necessary for what you're saying. Yeah, no, no, insect's not necessary. A lot of people go uh, and will think insect um, just because that's the way that they grow in the wild. But um, no, we, we work with grain-based substrates. I think because Cordyceps monoteris is capable of growing on so many different species of insects that it's um, less picky about what its substrate is. Um, so at first, back in 2015, um, I, my friend ran an insect farm for human consumption and he had the nutritional profile of these insects. So I asked him for it and then I kind of reverse engineered the, nu the nutritional profile of an insect, of a cricket, I think. Um, to make the substrate. Uh, but now we just utilize substrate that has been developed specifically for um, hyperproduction of various compounds in the mushroom um, that, were, that were developed in Asia. So that's what we use now. Um, so yeah, um, it takes a while to key in on um, which traits specific parent um, ascospore isolates are are contributing to the um, the morphology of the mushroom. So this one has really nice bulbous tops. I like that really round top. I also like the pigment on this one. Um, so for so at some points you're going to have to um, have multiple strains that you bred out with using the same parent. So you can see consistently in the various other um, offspring, which traits are are consistent through all of them that are um, related to that same parent. Um, this one, beautiful, really long. Um, it didn't fill out completely as much as I would like, but it, the yield was great. Um, I like how the parathecium are all located more towards the top. It's a very pretty strain. Um, you know, I would like a little bit darker pigmentation, but you can't really complain when you get a strain like this. Um, these two strains share one of the same parents, which is really interesting because the color is completely different. The heights, um, the only thing that's kind of similar, um, but al almost everything about these two mushrooms 
um, are different. Um, so the one on the left, bulbous tops, very defined parathesium, very defined those uh, bumps on the top, um, darker pigmentation. The one on the right, light pigmentation, pointier tops, pale bottom. Um, you know, they both filled out really nice. They didn't really leave much empty space on the cake, which I like, uh, but they didn't get that tall, either of them. But it's really interesting. They share one parent and you can't really tell that there's anything very similar about either of them. Um, so once I look at all the traits that the uh, parents are, are, are exhibiting in the various strains, um, I go back and combine isolated spores with desirable traits. Um, so now that I know which um, spore isolates are contributing whatever trait, um, I go back and I breed the ones that I liked with each other. Um, and then sometimes I will back cross. So I'll take one of the um, offspring and I'll breed it back to one of the parent cultures to kind of solidify some of the traits that I really like. So um, um, if we have, if I have one parent that's like, I know is putting off really nice long stromata um, and I bred it with something that made it fill out the cake really nicely, but they lost some of the height. Um, I can breed that one back to the parent with the height in the stroma um, to kind of lock in that height trait a little bit more. Uh, somebody asked, are you doing spore isolation under HEPA filtration? Yes. Yes, I am doing spore isolation under HEPA filtration. Um, because I have to open the Petri dish to remove the spores, I definitely need to be in front of the filter um, to make sure that, that I don't blow any contamination into my work. Um, so yeah, after that, I just go back. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll take some of uh, the fruiting bodies out from the progeny um, from the offspring, and I'll use that for the back crosses to get spores off again. Um, but yeah, then I kind of key in on which ones are going to be my commercial genetics, and then I'll start running those um, on my own farm, and then I'll also offer those um, for anybody else uh, on the internet. They can buy it from my, my website, microshop.net, to start cultivating on their own. Um, so yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the life cycle of uh, cordyceps militaris. What one question for you? Uh, do you worry about escape escape of novel strains? Um, I don't know what that means. Like like people getting a hold of of my novel strain that I made or something. Is that, uh, is that probably your spores going elsewhere and? I would say, I, I'm, I'm interpreting. Oh, escape of the strains into the wild. He clarified. Okay, good. Thanks, Brooke. Um, no, I'm not particularly worried about escaping of my strains into the wild. Um, I mean, they're only feeding on grain-based substrates. Um, in my books, in, in all my classes, in my work, I kind of uh, emphasize that people don't um, feed them species of insects that they don't grow on in the wild. Um, so don't start trying to get them to eat like bees or something crazy or praying mantis or something or ladybugs. Um, don't feed them anything that they don't grow on in the wild. Um, because that might, you might train them to be able to grow on, on something new. And then that those spores will definitely go in the wild. Cause you can't, you can't stop spores from getting out. Um, if you have the cleanest lab ever, there's still going to be spores that escape through the laboratory. Um, so you don't want to teach it to eat a new species of insect and then have it escape um, because that might have detrimental effects in the ecosystem. Um, yeah, so life cycle of Cordyceps militaris. Um, we have this really cool picture from 1837 um, I think this one's really interesting because we have this cross section that shows the inside of the parathesium. Um, but we also can see that whoever did this was utilizing a microscope because they have really detailed um, um, uh, rendition of the, of the parathesium here. Um, Cordyceps militaris are bipolar heterotholic. That's really interesting. Um, and what that means 
is although they have three mating types, they need two um, uh, mating compatible uh, uh, spores to produce regular club-shaped parathesial stromata in the offspring. Um, Self-fertility is occasionally observed, but very rarely. Um, cordyceps mushrooms are also capable of anamorphing, which is um, also very interesting and something that's not very not seen very often in the wild or in nature. Um, and and when they anamorph, what this means is um, the cordyceps militaris mycelium will morph into a soil mold, uh, typically simplicillum or lecanicillum. And I was really curious as to why uh, cordyceps militaris would would turn into a soil mold. Um, and Daniel Winkler um, from the Seattle Club, the, the, the PSMS, Puget Sound Mycological uh, Society, told me that the Tibetan cordyceps, uh, Ophiocordyceps sinensis, um, will morph into an endophytic fungi that lives inside of the leaves of the plant um, that its host insect consumes. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and it made me think, well, these mushrooms are so small um, and the spores that they're producing are so small and, and their host, their food source is also very small and it's mobile. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of factors that oppose um, two cordyceps mating compatible cordyceps spores from landing on an insect. Um, so I figured they have these various other mechanisms of, of completing their life cycle. There is a question for you, uh, which I, I think is, why not do tissue culture? Um, well, with the tissue culture, um, it's possible that your strain is already fairly old, um, potentially from the pre previous year. Um, and with cordyceps militaris, for whatever reason, um, at around nine months, nine to 12 months, um, the culture starts to senesce. Um, where it loses the ability to produce mushrooms. So um, whenever we're cloning, that can happen fairly quickly. Um, and I'd say even, even if you're really good and you know what you're doing, um, you might have like a 47, 48% um, success rate with clones. Uh, for whatever reason, the clones don't always even produce a mushroom. So even though it produced a mushroom in the wild, you can clone it and it will never produce a mushroom in culture. So um, spores just, it's its more of a guarantee that you're going to actually get something worthwhile at the end of it. To get back to my thought, I, I just, I find it really interesting and also incredibly um, intelligent evolutionarily that, the, that this mushroom will morph into a soil mold um, and then pretty much just wait for the insect to bury itself um, for pupation and then morph back into a uh, an ascomycete fungus, um, which I think is I think it's just incredible. Um, so these are some of the parathesium underneath the microscope. This is where the spores are are developed. Um, the spore these are the spores under the microscope here on the left. Um, they look like shards of glass, little pieces of selenite. On the right, we can see spores germinating out of the parathesium. So I used to do um, inbred multi-spore, uh, multi-ascospore cultures, which works, but after inbreeding for a couple generations, you'll start to get uh, genetic defects. But with the parathesium here, you it'll always be a multi-ascospore culture, but there are there is a potential that um, you'll get a clone because the parathesium also has the, the mycelium, the tissue from the fruiting body. Um, so I don't really mess around with the parathesium anymore. Um, here's a really nice picture that my friend drew for my new book, my newest book, uh, The Cordyceps Cultivation Handbook, Volume 2. So why do we love cordyceps? Um, well, there's a fair amount of compounds. Uh, there's a myriad of compounds actually that the cordyceps mushrooms produce. Um, right now, the most popular compound in the cordyceps mushroom is cordycepin, um, which is a molecule that's very similar to adenosine triphosphate, so much so that it could actually go into our cells, um, into our mitochondria and provide us energy on a cellular level. Um, at higher doses, um, cordycepin can inhibit um, DNA replication 
Um, but at small doses, which are recommended like a gram a day, it will inhibit DNA replication, but only of really fast growing cells like cancer cells or tumor cells. Uh, cordycepin and uh, cordymin, in, um, but cordycepin and cordymin independently and together in conjunction um, can inhibit HIV-1 reverse transcriptase, which I think is really interesting. And I think um, we'll, we'll be looking at that into the future. Um, the cortisanthins are the pigment, the pigmentation compounds um, that, are, that are unique specifically to cordyceps. Um, cordycepine, I forgot what that one does. Um, and I also forgot what cordyland does. Um, but there are a lot of valuable compounds. Um, the cordyceps can give us energy. They can allow us to take more oxygen into our body. They can reverse the effects of hypoxia. Um, they're also a potent aphrodisiac. So there's a lot of reasons why we love cordyceps. So this is one of the methods that we utilize for cultivating cordyceps is we either grow the mycelium in a bag or sterilize our grains in a bag and utilize the bag to inoculate our grains and to put them into other containers. Um, now we use these silica dough bags, sil silicone dough bags instead of these uh, mushroom bags because the silicone bags are more reusable. This is what I feed my cordyceps mushrooms. Uh, this is a commercial mix that um, I put together based on a lot of different uh, research I did on, on uh, substrates that can help cordyceps hyperproduce specific compounds. And this is the rice cooker instant pot tech uh, technique, which I think is really interesting for people that want to experiment with growing cordyceps, but don't really have a lab or all of that kind of stuff. Can prepare substrate in our in our instant pot, which works really well. Um, there is a question for you. I'm sorry, I should have caught it earlier. Um, do cordyceps supplements offer the same health benefits, or is it something lost in processing into a supplement? And there's another question after that. Um, well, I've never seen a pure cordyceps supplement, but. With this mushroom and most um, holistic type medicines, I would 100% recommend working with the full product, like the full plant, full mushroom, because there's a lot of like entourage, entourage effects that comes from other compounds um, in the mushroom. There's not, oh, there's not just like one compound from any plant or any mushroom that's like, like the best one because um, a lot of times there's a lot of the compounds in any living thing are going to work together. Um, um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you can go to the next question. Uh, can you recommend a source for consumption? For cordyceps? Sorry. Excuse me, it's been a long day. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. I, uh, I have a lot of friends that are starting to produce cordyceps. Um, so off the top of my head, no, but I can drop some stuff in the chat box. Um I know my friend uh, Fungi John is um, Adirondack Mycology is producing cordyceps fruiting bodies. Um, I think Garden State Mushrooms has cordyceps fruiting bodies every now and then. Um, cordyceps Fungi, I think, is the name of another friend's business that's based out of Florida. Um, yeah, so there's a, uh, a couple of different um um, distributors of cordyceps at this point in time now. They, they wondered why you didn't do this. Why I didn't do what? Um, produce for some consumption. I do sometimes, but I mostly just do research. Yeah, I just go where the wind blows, you know. Maybe there's something else I need to figure out. Now, do, do we know if culture medium changes the amount of various compounds in the mushroom? In the mycelium, we, we know this. Um, there isn't much information saying that it does that for the mushrooms. Um, but I'm pretty sure that if it does it for the mycelium, it's also going to do it for the mushrooms. So, um, hopefully one day I can get into, um, a laboratory with the analytical equipment to be able to test that. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we started out growing the cordyceps in jars mostly, and then eventually moved into larger containers. Here is an uh, Asian style will grow. I really like the one on the left um, with the air conditioning and the clean, nice clean building and all the lights. 
Um, cordyceps are very photosensitive and they will grow towards the light and they also need light to produce mushrooms um, and they need light for their pigmentation. This was my first setup for cultivating cordyceps mushrooms. Um, I learned a lot since then. It was just a spare closet in my house. Um, I had some um, vegetative grow lights in there and I was just experimenting with a lot of different methods of cultivation. Pretty early on, we found out that the red and blue spectrum lights um, trigger the mushrooms to produce more of the beneficial compounds that we want out of them. So um, I would initiate the pinning um, with the full spectrum vegetative grow lights, and then I would supplement in the red and blue LEDs to get them to produce more pigment. Um, then we started working, playing around with different size substrate, uh, more surface area to see if we can produce more mushrooms, which you can. Got some really nice shots there. Did a lot of strain testing. Um, nice parathesium there. I really like when the parathesium stand up very erect like that. Get, you get to see a lot of genetic variation, especially when you work with larger substrates. Um, because the mushrooms aren't exposed to the environment, um, you're able to see a lot of morphologies that you wouldn't see um, in the wild, um, which I really appreciate. Um, this picture is funny. Um, I got a lot of hate for this one. People were like, oh, you're going to cause a zombie outbreak in New York, or you're going to be, um, you're going to devastate insect populations in New York and da, 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 da. And I was like, none of that's going to happen. You guys are speaking out of a science fiction kind of understanding and not a really scientific background. But um, there is like a video game and television show or something uh, where cordyceps causes a zombie outbreak or, or something along those lines. Um, that a lot of people bring up all the time. Um, back in the day when I first was starting to cultivate the cordyceps mushrooms, um, I, and I, I really didn't have that much of them. So when I would harvest them, I would dehydrate them on a paper towel um, and then just store them in a dry container with a silica packet. So I still store them in a nice uh, airtight container with a silica packet, but now I use a big dehydrator, which I believe I have a picture of moving forward. Um, at this point, I've trained thousands of people, thousands of people have bought my book. Um, this is one of my students grow um, in upstate New York. Um, they were having a little bit of issues. So I came back in to help them figure out how to get everything growing again. And this is my one of my grows in Weaverville, North Carolina, where I set up the first um, commercial scale cordyceps cultivation operation in the United States. And I grew pounds and pounds and pounds of cordyceps mushrooms. Uh, we had nice large harvests um, and uh, we were dehydrating lots of cordyceps. I think every month it was like four or six pounds of dry cordyceps mushrooms. Uh, we did play around with eating the substrate, um, but whenever we're gonna eat that substrate now, we actually don't produce mushrooms. Um, we just produce the mycelium on the grains first and that's it. Um, so this is mycelium on grains and dehydrated and turned into a flour. Um, so this would be like rice flour that is fermented with the cordyceps mycelium. Um, played around with various extracts. Um, so we'll do concentrated extracts, mycelium extracts, fruit body extracts, um, and do different uh, foods medicine products through the company Cognitive Function. This is an alcohol extract, ethanol extract. Um, and I've played around with other various experiments um, like growing the mycelium on fresh cacao beans, um, which turned out really nice. Since cacao is an aphrodisiac and cordyceps also an aphrodisiac, I thought it'd be interesting to combine the two. Um, I was able to get mushrooms to grow off of it, uh, but I really just wanted the mycelium to ferment the beans. Um, once the mycelium had grown through the beans, um, I noted that there was um, no bitterness to the dark bean, the dark chocolate bean. Um, other than that, it tasted pretty much similar to chocolate, just way less bitterness. Um, we do make a lot of tea. Um, we have found that vitamin C um, or something slightly acidic will help to um, um, get more of the compounds out of the mushroom. Um, I like to cook with them. Um, just remembering per person, you only really need a gram a day. Um, for fresh a gram dry. Um, for fresh, um, you can extract um, a, a decent amount of compounds with cold water. 
Um, so we'll just put it into a jar of water and put it in the refrigerator overnight. Um, and then we'll drink that the following day. You'll notice it'll be like a nice yellow color. Have um, you checked the active level in the substrate mycelium culture? The active level of co of compounds? Yes, unless Charles wishes to elaborate. Um, no, we. I haven't tested the active level. Uh, do you know the half-life of the actives in humans? I don't know that. Um, no, I don't know that. There's not a lot of research around humans um, in, in English, at least. So, yeah, we've done the pickles. We've done pizzas, ramen noodles, all sorts of different things. Um, lots of different experiments. Every now and then we get really weird and rare morphologies. My friend Ryan's working with white one, right? White specimen right now. I've seen a red one. Um, we've done the cold water extract, fresh mushroom, ice pops, um, holistic lung syrup with other plants that are beneficial for lung health. Um, on the left here in this picture, we have Ophiocordyceps sufficacola, which parasitizes wasps, um, which we could utilize as a biopesticide. So I think that one's really interesting for that. And then on the right, we have Talipocladium ophioglossoides, which will be, um, which is, capable of being cultivated in the same methods that we utilize to cultivate cordyceps militaris, um, which is also really interesting because talipocladium um, ophioglossoides shows potential benefits um, in a similar fashion as lion's mane for nerve health, um, but also for prostate health. Um, so it uh, could be very beneficial in those ways. Um, so this is what the harvest used to look like at the farm in Weaverville, North Carolina. And yeah, I've been teaching classes about cordyceps um, since 2016. Yeah, right on. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the presentation. Um, if you want to find any more information, definitely go check out the YouTube. Um, that's youtube.com backslash apex grower. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at mycosymbiote or follow me on Facebook just by looking up my name. Um, and yeah, um, stay tuned. Um, to microsymbiotics.net um, and I'll be dropping a calendar with all of the dates for uh, 2021 um, any classes or anything like that that will be coming up um, so yeah thanks again guys for listening and if you have any questions feel free to ask I'll be sticking around for a little bit maybe Brooke didn't hear me he wanted to how does one book you for a cultivation workshop you can shoot me an email at mycosymbiotics at gmail.com and um, we could see if we can make something happen. Um, you know, once everything is opened up again, I don't mind traveling to teach. I actually prefer traveling to teach. Fantastic. Great presentation and good research. Thanks so much. This was fascinating. Thanks, William. This was super cool. But people, really, you can, you can... <laughs> Uh, you can. You are. You're perfectly welcome to unmute yourself and hey, make comments. Thank you, William. That was really awesome. I learned a lot, and uh, yeah, it was great. I, you know, I don't know much about cordyceps. It's a pretty unique fungus. So uh, I've, I've watched you on Instagram and such. So it's it's cool to watch your presentation, bro. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. Show some love. Help me. Um, I have to tell people something if I can. Um, William just gave this scholarly presentation uh, on science and methods and everything else. This man is also a remarkable poet and performer. And I'm saying that as, you know, somebody who's pursued that as a career. And if you ever get a chance to see this fella uh, in concert, I encourage everybody to do it. It's, it's not going to be what you think. I can't, encompass a description of what it's like but the it's mushroom based uh linguistically and and scientifically and also some of the headiest poetry i've ever seen i hope i get a chance to see it again i saw him perform at telluride my mind is still blown four years later and i just want to say that you're not going to realize that from this presentation specifically but th this is an artist here as well i just need to say that <laughs> Thank you. Um, Hunter wanted to know if I find the cordyceps in the wild, do they just dry and eat? So if you find them in the wild, make sure you clean them off very well. 
Um, you can dry them. And then I would recommend making a tea or putting them into a food or extracting them. Um, they're an ascomycete, like a morel mushroom, which definitely shouldn't be, be eaten raw. Um, so even if you just dry them, it doesn't necessarily make it um, cooked by any means or extracted. So um, dry, then extract or um, um, make a tea or, or put in food or something. And eat the insect too. Um, just take off the exoskeleton off of it. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, once you take the exoskeleton off, it's not really a bug in there anymore. It's just mycelium. What is the most unique mushroom you've been able to clone? And is there one you're still hoping to find? Um, the most unique thing I've been able to clone, um, maybe Ophiocordyceps ravenelli. That might be it, I think. Because um, I don't know anybody else that has that culture. Um, and what was the second part of that question? Um, and is there one you're still hoping to find? I want to find another Globophomys graveolens. Um, I haven't had a culture of that in a while, and it's something that I'm very interested to work with. Somebody wanted to know what were the reusable bags you used? And that they're a big fan, and thanks for always sharing your adventures. All right, on. Um, the reusable bags. Oh, the silicone bags. Yeah, um, silicone dough bags. I found those on the internet. Um, they came from Asia, I think. Um, but, you know, they're reusable. And they work pretty good. I'm, I'm sorry, where did they come from? I just found them come? on, like, eBay or something. Um, it's called silicone dough bag. I think it's meant for rolling, kneading dough in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. William, this was terrific. This was really excellent. I Oh, more questions. Are all of the compounds of interest present in the mycelium or are some of them unique to the fruiting body? Um, I can't answer that question. I don't know 100%. Um, as far as I know, the main compound. Want, oh, go ahead. So, and somebody wanted to know if they could listen to your music. Is it on YouTube? Yes. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, the the um, the main compounds that we're looking for are available in both the mycelium and the fruiting body at different levels. Um, and I think there's a lot more research that needs to go into that, and uh, I'm excited to spend time looking into that. Um, and my music can be found on YouTube or anywhere else um, by searching It's Cosmic. You have to put the whole thing in there, like IT apostrophe S Cosmic. You can look it up on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes or anything like that. It's, uh, and somebody put a link to Spotify on, um, on the chat. So that's probably for you. Oh, cool. Yeah, it is. So grab it, people, right now, because when we close down, a check goes away. Or you can contact me later, and I'll be happy to give you a copy. Well, thank you. So, any more questions, anybody? Doesn't look like it. So thank you, William. This was terrific. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future with your other research. Right on. Uh, it's, a, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully I can uh, come talk to you guys in person one day. That would be nice. And, and we'll be looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, because this, this is just the year that just blows. All yeah. right. Thank you again. All right. Be well. Be good.